Welcome to the Friday Dispatch Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Isger, joined by Steve Hayes and Tom Jocelyn, author of the Dispatch newsletter, Vital Interest, which you can subscribe to on our website, thedispatch.com. He joins us today to talk about September 11th, 19 years later. Let's dive right in. Tom, it is the 19th anniversary of September 11th. And you go on Twitter or on any news site. And um, it's interesting to re-remember not just what happened that day, but some of the stories that came out after and just some of the emotion that happened that day for all of us. And, uh, you know, maybe the easiest place to start is where were you? Actually, I was working as an economist, uh, uh, helping to run some very large research projects at the time. And um, I, to be clear, I have no uh, personal stake in the events of 9-11. I didn't know any of the victims or anything like that. But our sister company was, in fact, wiped out in one of the World Trade Centers. And um, I ended up taking up some of the work of people who were lost that day very, very briefly. Um, that, uh, you know, that I don't want to say that had any emotional impact on me. I don't think it really did, but I did. I did absolutely after that day become obsessed with trying to understand sort of what happened, and uh, in particular Al Qaeda and how Al Qaeda operates, and it's sort of an obsession that's uh, stuck with me all these years. Steve, where were you? I was uh, at uh, my house on Capitol Hill and um, had was preparing to go to Capitol Hill. Laura Bush was doing a an, a hearing on Capitol Hill on education policy. And I was preparing to go cover that and heard about the first plane hitting and flipped on the TV and watched the second plane hit um, and then scrambled. Then it was a scramble. I had to get to the weekly standard offices. My brother was working at the World Bank at the time, and there was lots of early speculation that what was targeted were, you know, pillars of the world economy. Um, so lots of people thought, at least in those those first couple hours, that the World Bank was a, a target or a possible target. So couldn't get a hold of my brother for the entire day, basically. And then finally uh, met up with him late in the afternoon, very frustrated that he hadn't gotten a hold of me in the in the meantime. And uh, I think I, you know, punched him and then gave him a huge hug. <laughs> Where were you? So I was at home because I was in college and we were on the quarter system. So we hadn't started school yet. And uh, so I was obviously sleeping in because I was, uh, you know college age. And uh, I remember hearing my mother's voice and her saying, uh, Sarah, you need to wake up and come downstairs. And the way she said it, I assume my grandmother had died. And, yeah. you know, it was like that tone, you know, your parents have a tone when like, <laughs> basically when a grandparent has died, like <laughs> there's a very specific tone that your parents take. And, uh, so, you know, I got up without complaint and I, I came downstairs sort of, you know, I loved my grandmother very much. And, um, and the TV was on and she said, uh, your dad told me I needed to call and wake you up and have you come down and watch this. And that was before the towers had fallen, but after both planes had hit and I just didn't move from the TV for 48 hours. I mean, they shut down Houston. They had F-15s flying over the oil refineries um, that you could hear and stuff. But it was a interesting age, I think for nine 11 to happen because as a college student, I had sort of just left the, um, the umbrella of my parents' protection, both sort of, you know, literally, but also metaphorically. And so, you know, your first time sort of out in the world to feel like the world is falling apart that day and that the world is a a very scary place. Um, I think for my generation, those sort of elder millennials, uh, it had an enormous impact. And you see that in the people who signed up to serve, but I think you also see it in just our, our entire like cohort of that generation's, um, attitude towards politics and nonprofit work and a whole bunch of things that we get made fun of for. But I do think it's a lot of it is due to that. I mean, it was life-changing. That was, um, the first 
major world-changing event of our lives. Challenger had happened, but that didn't change the world as tragic as it was. Right. Uh, and so, I mean, you, you know, Tom, this started really a whole different career for you. Yeah, I mean, it did. I, you know, and I, I think um, it eventually did. It sort of was one of these things where Steve knows. I, ta- I started talking to Steve around 2003, sometime in 2003. And he knows I sort of had this habit on the side of doing my full-time, more than full-time work where I was doing all this research on Al-Qaeda and jihadism and sort of building up my knowledge base on these, these issues. And uh, without getting too far into the personal details on that, I'd just say one of the things that strikes me all these years later is you know, I, I was initially became focused or obsessed with this because I thought that there were some basic epistemological problems here in terms of understanding, you know, just what Al-Qaeda is, how it functions, you know, how it's willing to create relationships with other entities, you know, sort of what its goals were. All those things were sort of not well understood um, in September 2001. And I don't think they were well understood in the years immediately after it. And I, I think the, the main thing I've learned in my career is they're still not well understood to this day. Um, there are still issues about Al-Qaeda, basic um, issues of definition, basic issues of who's who, how does it function, that sort of thing, that are still not understood. And, and it's sort of shocking to some people when I say that. I, 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 want, I want this to sink in because this is sort of the, the main thing I could say about all this is that, you know, if there are 17 U.S. intelligence agencies or 16 U.S. intelligence agencies, depending on how you, t- how, how you count it, there are probably 22 different definitions of Al-Qaeda. Um, you know, nobody can agree on even what this thing totally looks like. You know, the, the last time the U.S. government put out an assessment of, um, and this matters, we're going to get to why this matters in a second, but the last time U.S. government put out sort of just a, a, a basic assessment of the structure of Al-Qaeda, here's how it operates, to my knowledge, publicly, was in 2004, the 9-11 Commission Report, um, and that was somewhat cursory. To my knowledge, there hasn't been a similar public statement about what Al-Qaeda looks like to this day. And what that has, what's happened is because these basic issues of definition are not, have not been resolved, and a lot of my work has been to try and work to resolve them, you get things like yesterday, we're recording this on September 11th, and on September 10th in the Washington Post, there was an op-ed by the um, new director of the National Counterterrorism Center, Christopher Miller. And I would say that there were, you know, he basically was saying that we're close to the end of the fight against Al-Qaeda, which you can debate about, you can debate that the merits of the argument, and we can certainly do that. But what I want people to take away from this is that in that op-ed, there were a couple of misstatements of fact, material misstatements of fact, like not, these are not, these are not sort of small points that he got wrong. I mean, these are big points that he got wrong. Um, and you know, that to me, this is a guy who's a national counterterrorism director, you know, and this national counterterrorism center. And we see this stuff all the time, you know, all the time I see stuff that just people can't get basic things right about this. And it's sort of, Spooky, I would say that the U.S. government has spent all this money and it's spent all these resources and we spent all we spent all this time fighting wars and launching drone strikes and shutting down terrorist operations, and yet you can't just get a simple, straightforward, you know, evidence-based definition of Al Qaeda straight from a lot of U.S. officials. It's really something, actually. How much, Tom? How how much of that is just sloppy, um, bad, um, bad work product? How much of it is this sort of natural um, outgrowth of bureaucracy. I mean, this is what bureaucracies do. And how much of that is, would you say, intentional? You know, that's a great question. I think it's actually a mix of everything you just said. You know, I mean, you know, look, we we have one of the ways I phrase this, and Steve, you know, I've used this this phrase for a long time. And General H.R. McMaster was the national security advisor to President Trump, uh, for a while, he he's he's adopted this phrase too because I, I think he encountered the same thing. Um, was there's there is definitely an analytic school which plays disconnect the dots. So you remember after 9-11, the whole theory was we have to connect the dots in the 9-11 Commission report. You have to figure out what's going on. You know, do the basic sort of investigative work about what Al Qaeda is and what its intentions are and what it's doing. There's been a whole analytic school that's grown up both inside and outside of government that plays disconnect the dots. So you could have a group that stands up and says, hey, you know, we're Al-Qaeda and we're loyal to Al-Qaeda's emir and we've got, you know, a few thousand fighters who are waging this insurgency in Somalia. And you'll have people rush to say, well, it's not really Al-Qaeda. It's just a local group, blah, 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 blah. And you, they, let me just jump in here because I sure. think this is a really, really important point. And I'd like to, to offer our listeners a basic understanding of why this is. I can imagine listening to this podcast and think, why in the world would people want to disconnect the dots? The right. entire, 
the entire program, the, the entire objective here should be to connect us. Why have we seen, and, and by the sure. way, I agree with your assessment. And I think, you know, we could point to literally probably hundreds of instances in which this has happened. Absolutely. Whether you're talking about Shabab, whether you're talking about, you know, the, the yeah. groups involved with Benghazi, you can go on and on and on. Yeah. And this has happened again and again and again. Why does it happen? I, I think the root the root for this for this answer there again there are multiple answers to your original question why is why is sort of this misunderstanding this one root misunderstanding starts with um, I think a policy bias an ideological bias against the use of U.S. military force and U.S. and U.S. interventionism and U.S. activism now look there's a lot you can criticize about U.S. interventionism post 9/11 so that I'm not offering a blanket defense in any in any in any by any means but what I think you know what we've run into is there there are a lot of times people say oh you're just saying that you know this party or that party is connected to al-Qaeda or to ISIS now because you want to use military force. I'd say no. I, you can debate what you want to do about all this, you know, and I think the answer is probably different from theater to theater and from case to case. I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all answer to all this stuff in terms of policy at all. Um, but you have to bifurcate sort of what the analysis is and what's going on from what your policy recommendations are. And what I would say is that it's much more common, in my experience, to have people who are against the U.S. using military force or U.S. action um, to play disconnected dots than it is for somebody who is sort of a so-called hawk to play to overconnect the dots. Um, and I know that's, that's very it's a very weird thing, but if you think back to the policy debates in Washington, part of the reason why it's so poisonous, and Steve, you and I have dealt with this for years. Just think about the number of times people dismiss something you or I have said because they impute some motive to us for wanting to for military action or US force or something like that. And it's really pretty amazing to watch because the truth is exactly in my my case exact opposite you know um you know that basically it, it's a lot of times like i'll give you one recent example it's pretty clear that isis has made a move into mozambique and to different remote places of africa right um do i think the u.s military should should inject itself into these fights no i actually i don't right but does that mean that this isn't really isis or it isn't connected to the isis mothership no it, it could very well be tied to the isis mothership and outgrowth of their projects um, now, with ISIS, we've seen this disconnected dot stuff a lot less than we've seen with al-Qaeda. Um, al-Qaeda became sort of the, the heart of the disconnected dots analysis because post 9-11, the use of U.S. military force in particular, especially with the Iraq war, became highly controversial. And so um, even when I think these people have legitimate critiques or criticisms of the actual policies that were, have been courses that have been taken by the U.S., again, you have to bifurcate, but you have to, again, have to bifurcate your analysis of what you see going on with what you want to do about it. And I think that too often you see basically those two things conflated. Let me Big push, picture. Sarah, can I push one, one yeah. more question and then I want to throw it back to you to sort of broaden the discussion. Isn't there, isn't there a second explanation here? And the second explanation is if you disconnect the dots, the, the, the culpability uh, on the intelligence operatives and analysts who miss things is far lower Right. I mean, if if, for instance, you've got a group that's operating <clears throat> out of northern Afghanistan that they can say, look, this is a local group. These are local people with local interests. They have nothing to do with the nothing to do with Al Qaeda, maybe occasionally overlapping with the Taliban. They're not a threat to the United States. We don't we don't need to really pay attention to it. We don't need to include them in, into our broad threat analysis. If if that's the case, it allows the intel analysts, whether you're talking about, you know, folks at the, the State Department, whether you're talking about folks in, in the Defense Intelligence Agency at the CIA, to sort of throw up their hands and say, this is not this. This should not be our focus. This is not this doesn't present a threat. Yeah, I think I think it provides a convenient out for certain policymakers and certain analysts and certain people is for sure. You know, um, you know, I'll give you I'll give you one example on this um, from history. So, you know, Al Qaeda and Islamic Maghreb is the one, one of the things. Let's take one quick step back here for a second. So we're sitting recording this on the anniversary of 9-11. And of course, you know, if you told me on September 12th that we wouldn't have another big attack like 9-11 inside the U.S., I probably would have been surprised. You know, I, I think there were a lot of threats coming our way and a lot of threats were stopped. Um, and there's, there's a whole new book that needs to be written about just that. Like what actually, what were, what were the serious plots that were thwarted? I think that that needs, a, a, needs more scrutiny um, because I think a number of serious plots were thwarted. Um, and so that's, that's a major achievement for the national security bureaucracy and, and people involved, um, you know, although there are inefficiencies and all sorts of problems. Um, by the same token, the jihadi insurgency has spread. 
Um, and why is that? Well, I think what people don't realize is that you know we as Americans look at 9-11 through the lens of 9-11 itself, through those attacks, and that's understandable. But that was not the, and what many Americans and many analysts assumed was that that was Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda's singular focus. Like all they wanted to do is really strike the U.S., and that's not true. Um, they they have their literature before 9-11, um, immediately after 9-11, and now this many years, 19 years later, sets forth their theory of the world. Their theory of the world was they needed to hit the U.S. as one step yeah, out of a number of steps in order to sort of slowly acquire power in the Muslim-majority countries because they thought that the America was the thing that was propping up all these dictatorships and anti-Islamic sort of you know parties that basically were keeping them from seizing power, whether it be in Saudi Arabia or Egypt or anywhere else. Now, there's a lot to be, a lot of reasons why that theory of the world doesn't make sense, by the way, it isn't true. Um, but that was their theory of the world. And the bottom, but the bottom line observation from that is what they what they were focused on, what Al Qaeda was focused on right from the beginning was seizing power in these countries and trying to wage insurgencies to topple these governments. That was always their focus. That's always what they wanted to do. And so people forget, for example, um, that immediately after 9-11, in the months after 9-11, al-Qaeda tried to launch an insurgency in Saudi Arabia. They wanted to overthrow the Saudi royals. Now, I'm not holding any brief for the Saudi royals, trust me. But um, that was part of what Osama bin Laden wanted to do. It wasn't just about attacking the U.S. Like, they wanted to actually take over parts of the Middle East. Now, they've had setbacks in that regard, too. Just as they've had setbacks in trying to launch another 9-11-style attack, they've had setbacks in trying to acquire power overseas. But their insurgency footprint, that means the war fighting that they do to try and accomplish that goal has undoubtedly deepened and spread. And so whereas on September 10th, 2001, um, you had al-Qaeda in just a smattering of countries, you know, small presence in Yemen, basically its hub was in Afghanistan, with logistical networks in Pakistan, um, and then, you know, smattering of presence in other places. You now have full-blown jihadi insurgencies waged by either al-Qaeda or ISIS or both in theaters everywhere from West Africa to South Asia. Um, and that's not an accident. You know, um, the thing that I, I try and express when I explain this to people is that Osama bin Laden um, in Al Qaeda circles and his admirers, they call him the reviving sheikh or the reviving imam. What does that mean? Well, um, it means that they credit him, among others, with reviving jihad in Muslim majority countries, making jihad hip again for the Muslim youth and others, because basically their theory of the world was that jihad wasn't really widespread, wasn't really acceptable in a lot of these countries prior to 9-11. And bin Laden needed to do something to spark the jihadi revolution, and 9-11 was it. And I would say that if you, if he were, if bin Laden has been dead now um, since 2011, uh, so almost going on 10 years of that next year, I mean, t- a decade next year, but if he had to look at the world and he'd say, well, if you told him in 2001, that um, he'd be dead by 2011, but the jihadi revolution that he sought to spark would have started and would have would have spread out. I think he would have taken that. I think he would have said that's that's what this was all about, and uh, you know that's that's my mission. And unfortunately, he succeeded. And so now now the issue is for the U.S. government as it seeks to disentangle itself from the 9/11 wars and from all this other stuff is that jihadi revolution is still raging across a number of countries. And what does that mean for our security interests going forward and, and our allies and everything else? And I think that's where we, we get into a lot of poisonous now rhetoric uh, domestically on this stuff. Big picture. And I want you to be able to define some of the terms that I'm going to ask about here. But are we safer than we were on September 10th, 2001? Are we safer than we were on, you know, eight years ago and four years ago? That's tough to answer. And actually, you just you just hit on a major question, actually, Sarah, which is so I mentioned this op ed in the Washington Post from Christopher Miller, the new director of the National Counterterrorism Center. And he said that Al Qaeda is incapable of waging a large scale attack now. Um, What I would say about that is it mean a large scale attack in the West. They can certainly wage a large scale attack in Syria or Somalia or Afghanistan or Pakistan or Mali. They do that all the time. Right. So, you know, they're waging large scale attacks in all these other countries. The question is, can they wage a large-scale attack in America or somewhere in Europe? Um, I'm not as uh, confident in his assessment as he is. Um, so the issue is, again, if you understand their thinking of the world, when's the last time that al-Qaeda took a big shot at us, right? It's been years, right? They had a small small attack in Pensacola, Naval Air Station Pensacola last year, where a Saudi lieutenant who was acting as a sleeper agent for al-Qaeda actually infiltrated the air base as part of a Saudi joint training program with the U.S. military, killed three U.S. service members and wounded several others. Now, this guy, Mohammed al-Shamrani, you know, this was a very small-scale attack. You could say it's limited casualties, 
But why didn't he try and go to a mall and shoot up a bunch of people in a mall? Why didn't he try and do something bigger? You know, why didn't they use have other guys involved? And I think part of the answer is they wanted to send a message, you know, sort of a message and, and, and extract U.S. military blood on American soil. Now, the question is, there are a lot of people like Miller at the National Counterterrorism Center would say, well, they did that because they couldn't do something bigger. I mean, maybe, maybe our defenses are so good that they couldn't do something bigger, or maybe they made a decision that they're not even trying to do something bigger right now um, because, you know, they're, they're invested in all these fights around the world and they're basically, you know, waiting for some, some other things to shake out. I don't know the answer for sure, to be honest with you. And I don't, I don't think Miller does either. I don't think Odie and I, the Office of Director of National Intelligence, knows the answer for sure either. All I, all I can say to you is that as I look at around the world, Al-Qaeda and ISIS are carrying out a large amount of violence on a day-to-day basis. It's sort of drifted a lot from the American consciousness because they're not attacking regularly in downtown New York or Washington right now, and they haven't, haven't done a big attack like that in, since 9-11. But they're carrying out an awful lot of violence elsewhere. And what, what does it mean to them? I mean, how easy would it be for them to, say, take five guys from Somalia and repurpose them for an attack inside the U.S. if they could get them into the U.S., you know, or do that from somewhere else? I mean, so it's, it's a long-winded way of answering your question. That basically, I would say our defenses have absolutely gotten better, but I'm still worried that new holes are emerging in our defenses. And I think you have to look at our, our adversaries as more strategic-minded than a lot of people do. That, you know, basically, once you understand that attacking us wasn't their end-all, be-all, and that they had other things going on, and that there's a calculation that they're making on that stuff, you maybe you won't be so confident that they can't do something more going forward. Are we still vulnerable? I mean, let's let's think about where we are right now. Um, we don't talk about al-Qaeda much. Uh, to the extent that we talk about jihadism at all, um, it's, a, it's a one-off line in the speech. Um, or it's now it's all derided as part of the endless wars, which makes it sound like America is the only thing that's keeping these conflicts going. And it's all right. America's fault that this is going on in the first place, you know. Well, and you have um, you have President Trump um, making an argument that he's going to end the endless wars. Uh, he, he announced uh, the other day, his administration announced the other day that uh, we were reducing our remaining troops in Iraq by not quite half, I think from 5,200 to 3,000. Um, the, uh, he's made repeated promises that American troops will be, con- con- will continue to be withdrawn from Afghanistan with an April, 2021, um, end date for a full withdrawal. You have, uh, peace negotiations taking place, uh, this coming weekend, in Afghanistan with uh, Taliban representatives and representatives of the Afghan government with Mike Pompeo flying to Doha, Qatar uh, to um, participate or, or help guide those potentially. Is this all over? I mean, it, we, we, it, you'd be forgiven for thinking that this is all over and that the threat to us is really gone. And I think people can make a reasonable case that that's, that that's the reality now. So why do we need to care about this anymore? Well, that's all, all that is um, premised on sort of the perceptions of Trump and Pompeo and these people who want to get America out of the endless wars, right? The rhetoric. And it's all based on that framing of things. And what we always say is, okay, that's your framing of things, but the enemy gets a vote. So, um, you know, you want to say, you know, you want to say the U.S. is getting out of Afghanistan. Well, somebody just tried to kill the vice president of Afghanistan right on the eve of these so-called peace talks. Who was that? Right. Right. Who was that? Amro Amro Saleh. Who tried to kill him? Probably the Taliban, probably the Qadi network. You know, they're. Let me jump in. in. This is what the president and his defenders would say. Look, that's horrible. We we would rather not have leaders of, of other nations, particularly if they're allies or nominal allies of the United States being targeted. Why is that our business? That's not our business anymore. It's 20 years after the 9-11 attacks. Why do we care? We don't care. I, I mean, all I could say to that is go ahead and test the theory, right? I mean, we tested that with ISIS. You know, Obama tested that in 2011, 2012. At the end of 2011, all American forces were out of Iraq. The theory was that al-Qaeda in Iraq, the predecessor to ISIS, was just a local force, a local mafia that didn't pose an international threat. That was the theory, right? Go for it. Test it again. You know, let's see, you know, I mean, I know where my bet is, you know, I know what my bet is and where this is all going. You know, I know that, you know, for everybody wanting to declare this end and over, I know that I think we're on the, we're on the cusp of another bump in jihadism globally. And this is going to, this is going to get another surge from this. I look, I, this is what I say about Trump and all this. And you've heard me say this, Stephen, this is, I think a little hard for people to understand. I can't 
in good conscience, advocate an ongoing you know, effort in Afghanistan, because I think there have been multiple failures of leadership there, both military leadership and political leadership. Um, and so I, I think it's a mess. And I don't think there's been any real critical sort of thinking on this or clear eyed thinking on Afghanistan in a long time. So people read some of my columns at the dispatch and elsewhere, and they think, oh, you just want to keep us in Afghanistan. If you actually listen to what I say, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we failed here and you can get out. The difference is, what difference what I'm saying is you can get out, right? I think that's going to have a cost. Uh, I, want, I want to be clear about what that cost is. Um, and the cost is because Al-Qaeda is still very much alive and Al-Qaeda is still very much aligned with the Taliban. And this is where I draw a sharp disagreement with Trump and Pompeo. Um, I think it's fine for Trump to say he doesn't trust the generals and he, they don't know what they're doing. And he uses words I wouldn't use. And he says it in ways I wouldn't say it. And he's, he's nasty in some of his language, for sure. I just debunked some of what he said about the Pentagon in, in my most recent newsletter. But um, his, his criticism, I don't think he's wrong in his criticism. I mean, the generals have had a, a have had rose-colored glasses on when it comes to Afghanistan for a long time. You know, listen, I run, I help run a website called Long Word Journal where every time we would point out that the military's assessments don't add up to what they claim they add up to, like, you know, ter- more territory was falling in the jihadists than they want, gripped than they wanted to say, or, you know, that they're launching more attacks than they wanted to say, they would suppress the data. They would then withhold the data. So, you know, I've been dealing with DOD's sort of incompetence on this stuff for a long time, I would say. Um, so I, I would say Trump's criticisms are are very well placed in some ways, even if I don't agree with how he does it. But that doesn't mean you endorse the Taliban as your counterterrorism partner as you leave. It doesn't mean you, you claim that the, that, that the terrorism issue is solved. If you really only care about American interests and protecting Americans, and you don't really care about any of these countries, you don't really care about anything else, then you should understand that Taliban is still very closely allied with al-Qaeda this day. And that's not just me saying that. I mean, the Defense Department, just Inspector General's office just came out with a report in August and, and this is the Defense Department, which has signed on for the State Department's so-called peace talks and withdrawal deal and everything else. And their Inspector General's office says, yeah, you know, our sources, U.S. officials, the U.N. say that al-Qaeda and the Taliban are fighting on a day-to-day basis side by side against the Afghan government. They're working to overthrow the Afghan government. Right. Because in al-Qaeda's world, resurrecting the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, the Taliban's regime is a big win for them. Big win. Um, and so I, just to wrap this up. You know, the thing I the thing I object to is you could say the U.S. military effort is adrift. We've been there 19 years. We don't know what we're doing. And I want to get out. I can understand that. I can't understand saying, hey, I'm going to endorse the Taliban on my way out the door. I can't understand that because that does that's not rooted in any fact. I want to change the subject to some breaking news we've had this morning. Uh, You know, last week we saw the diplomatic accord between Israel and the UAE brokered by President Trump. This morning, they've announced that uh, Bahrain is expected to normalize relations with Israel this morning. Uh, both how big a deal is this as, you know, the, the conservative media is, you know, heralding this is a very big step for President Trump. There's discussion of him winning a Nobel Peace Prize over it. Um, is this the Middle East peace deal, right? Is this the end of what has been going on for 60 years with Israel and Palestine, and it's just coming from a very different angle. Well, I, I would say, look, I think President Trump and Secretary of State Pompeo deserve some credit here, for sure. I don't want to, you know, knock them down uh, right off the get-go. I think they deserve some credit for what's going on in some of these deals and taking place, and their sort of, their vision of the Middle East was very different from the Obama administration's vision. They, they, they saw that there was, um, something to be made of the fact that all these parties were opposed to Iran's aggression and growing influence and that they could sort of stitch together sort of new sort of partnerships or even alliances um, based on that common threat um, and take advantage of that. And I think they did. I think they, I think they have, you know, they've had some success in that regard. I think these are tech, these are sort of the tectonic plates behind this were moving before the Trump administration. If you know, if you know what was going on, this wasn't something that just came out of the blue that, that basically Israel was already brokering sort of behind closed doors and, and, and uh, sort of opening itself up to try and get these relationships moving well before president Trump came into office. But, you know, you can make an argument that if you had a president Obama was still in office, for example, and was sort of focused on, you know, his vision of Iran is not necessarily our enemy and, you know, detente and that sort of thing, that that vision would have gotten in the way of this. That, that's plausible. It's a plausible counterfactual. You can't guarantee it. Um, but, uh, you know, look, I think it's I think it's a big deal. I mean, you want to see more of this. You want to see, you know, I mean, there's there's rumblings, even other countries maybe coming to the table. But I think, listen, here's the here's the bottom line for me. Um, people have tried to make Israel the center of the Middle East problems. Right, in the center of that, basically the Israel-Palestinian conflict is sort of central to everything else. That is just not true. I mean, you, you just look throughout the region, and that's just not true. And and if you start from that premise that this is the central thing that's driving violence in the Middle East or driving jihadism or driving any of this stuff, 
It just ain't true. You know, I mean, we, we, you know, we started off talking about Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda likes to throw a rhetorical sort of flourish about Israel and Palestinian issues constantly. And Osama bin Laden used to like to do that. But they've done absolutely nothing when it comes to the Israeli issue uh, in terms of operations or anything else. So it becomes a talking point that people use to justify their own sort of stuff and uh, their own worldview. Um, so, well, I think it's a great thing that this has happened. I think the Trump administration deserves some credit for it. I think it was also underway beforehand. And I would just say that the Israeli-Palestinian issue, which is sort of also part of this, but not the whole thing, um, is not as central to Middle Eastern affairs as people have made it out. Yeah, we had a good, we had a really good piece from Tom's colleague, Jonathan Chanzer, um, on our, on the Dispatch website the other day as part of our Biden agenda um, series, where we're looking at specific issues uh, under a perspective Biden administration. <clears throat> and Jonathan made the case sort of similar, lines up similar to what, what Tom said, which was, you know, previous administrations had looked at everything through the prism of, of Israeli-Palestinian peace. And the strength of what the Trump administration has done here is not be bound by that, um, to be more creative. <clears throat> I think Tom is right that this was... Well, John's a smart guy. I hadn't read his piece, so I feel good. I feel, vindi- vindi- I feel vindicated now than that. Yeah, I feel vindicated. Yeah, very now. smart. Yeah. I mean, so. you know, he, he calls it the, the inside out and the outside in approach. And yeah. in fact, what he said was, you know, administration after administration after administration bought the kind of um, hardened, I would say, brittle foreign policy conventional wisdom that everything was about Israel-Palestinian uh, accord, Israel-Palestinian peace. And until and uh, unless you address that, none of this other stuff was possible. And you did have people, I would say, mostly on the innovative foreign policy right saying, no, 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 that's not the case. There are, w- there are many different ways that we can, can get at that. Some of them have found jobs in the Trump administration have been making this case internally. And, and it happens to coincide, A, with what Israel uh, wanted to do under Benjamin Netanyahu, and B, uh, a complement to the policy of isolating Iran. Um, so this, this I think, was a smart sort of, I don't even know what the proper analogy would be. The Trump administration was smart not to try to redirect these discussions back into the old paradigm and kind of, paradigm and kind of embrace what we've seen. How far will it go? It's hard to know, but I do think they deserve credit for for not, um, you know, going along with the the foreign policy conventional wisdom on this and being willing to to be open and innovate. Steve, I'm curious what you think are the percentage chances that Trump gets the Nobel Prize? Uh, slim, I would say slim. He, you know, should he? Maybe anybody anybody can. Question. Look, I mean, I, I don't honestly, I'm not an expert on how the Nobel Prize Committee makes its determinations. And certainly I think there are lots of other ways in which he has disrupted peace rather than advanced peace. Um, I do think in a narrow way he, he, he deserves credit for this. I don't think you know none of the accounts of how this came about had Donald Trump rolling up his sleeves and really getting into the, the nitty gritty. But that's not necessarily the job of the president. Nobody was more involved in the details of this than, you know, Jimmy Carter was. He wanted to to do this decades ago. And um, Donald Trump is not a details guy. He didn't want to do this. But I do think, look, the, the Palestinian authority, I mean, the Palestinians broadly, we had seen kind of growing and uh, unavoidable corruption. And the United States in trying to forge these peace deals had to make all of these accommodations again and again and again for for corrupt Palestinians. And then you had further sort of deeper schisms between the various factions among Palestinians that we tried to to navigate. And none of it worked. None of it worked. It always went went backwards. I do think he deserves credit um, for, again, not being stuck in that old paradigm. Remember, people were sort of doing the chicken little act on moving the embassy to Jerusalem under Donald Trump. You can't do any of that. You can't do that. People will, the, 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 the streets will be aflame and, and whatnot. And, and none of it happened. And I think that's, again, Donald Trump is, is sort of stubborn. He's, he can be dogmatic. He's not going to be sort of bullied uh, by people who are making those claims. Uh, I don't think that, the success that we've seen comes from his deep and long thought about how to 
advance peace in the Middle East. But that doesn't take away from the fact that I think these are very positive developments. If I were voting to give him uh, the Nobel Peace Prize and I were looking at the broad landscape and, you know, taking into account where we are elsewhere in the world, um, thinking of North Korea, thinking of Russia, thinking about, no, he would not get my vote for the Nobel Peace Prize. But I think on this narrow issue, he he and his administration deserve credit. Tom, any additional thoughts on the Nobel? Um, you know, I don't put much stock in the Nobel one way or the other. I, you know, I, I <laughs> if you if, if you heard me uh, through the years, I have a very dim view of the Western elite, uh, and uh, you know, it's just sort of another example of that I would say that if President Trump were a lefty, if he were a Democrat, not a Republican, and had sort of the left wing sort of establishment behind him, then his chances of getting a Nobel Prize would probably be pretty high. Um, well, you know, Barack Obama got a no, Nobel I just Prize say that. for being Barack for rhetoric. Obama. We've got right. Barack Obama got got yeah. it for rhetoric. Yeah. I mean, it basically, you know, I mean, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's that's essentially what what you would see here. And that's actually that that's sort of, you know, that's part of what's driving Trumpism, in my view, is sort of a reaction to sort of all that sort of, uh, you know, established establishmentarianism, which I, I agree with some of that uh, uh, rejection of it, by the way. So. All right. Last topic, election security. We're, you know, roughly 50 days out from the election uh, mail Ballots have already gone out in North Carolina. Uh, what are the biggest threats? What are the fakest threats, if you will, Tom? Foreign you know, interference-wise, obviously. Yeah, I don't know. I think, you know, I've heard something similar to what I think Steve has heard about this, that some of the actors that are out there could potentially do more to disrupt our elections, and it's basically a choice of whether or not they will or not, in particular the Chinese Communist Party. Um, I think the Russians could do more to, to harm us than they have. I'm a little skept- more, probably more skeptical than a lot of people about the efficacy of what Russia's done. Um, you know, I, I I try and think in terms of not because I have any um, preconceived bias one way or another on it. I don't really care what the answer is, but I think that you know you look at the sort of breathless coverage on Russia, Russia, Russia over the last several years, and there's been so much over-reporting on this that it sort of makes me skeptical now. Anytime I hear it brought up like, well, it doesn't mean that there isn't a story there. I think there is a story there, but I want to hear specifically what in particular Russia is accused of doing and then how, what's the chain of evidence to showing an impact that something actually came up about from it. Um, because I think that those steps are oftentimes sort of overlooked, you know, like I did a piece um, in a newsletter. I was just very narrowly looking at these websites that were, that were brought up in a state department report on Russian disinformation and basically, my conclusion was, look, I think that the stuff that was cited in that report, which wasn't specific to the election, it was just sort of in general disinformation online. I think that basically those websites cater to cranks and conspiracy theorists that are going to exist whether or not Russia is sponsoring their websites or not. Um, how you know, uh, effective is that stuff in terms of tilting American opinion? I find it dubious to say it's having a big impact. Like, I don't think the New York Times is running a 9-11 truther story on the front page tomorrow. And a lot of that stuff is 9-11 trutherism. You know, but does that mean that it's not having zero impact? No, I wouldn't say it's not having any impact. That's just one example. Like overall, you know, I, I don't think I think the media is so sort of focused on um, now anything that comes from the Russian sphere that there'll be more criticism and skepticism of anything that even has a, even has a mild Russian taint to it now um, that it won't won't make much of an impact in the mainstream media. There'll probably be more reporting about how bad it is that Russia tried to do this than Russia actually getting away with something. But I think to, to tie up this long-winded answer, the um, I think there probably is more that China and other actors can do, maybe even Russia, in terms of technology and other things um, going forward here in the remaining weeks. And the question is whether or not they choose to do so. I don't know if that's right with what you hear. We heard, Steve. I think some similar, right? Yeah, two, two big developments overnight, I mean, I think, and, and pretty significant. One, um, the Treasury uh, designating Andrei Derkach as a um, Russian agent. This is somebody who was uh, working with Rudy Giuliani to uh, distribute, disseminate, expand, um, sow disinformation about Ukraine and particularly Hunter and Joe Biden. Uh, the guy is a bullshit artist and um, Giuliani and others were amplifying his claims, hoping to, to have them catch on in the U.S. media. The, the U.S. And by, Treasury, the, and by the way, and by the way, I am the I was a senior counterterrorism advisor to Mayor Giuliani in the 2008 presidential campaign. And I disclaim all this. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I have absolutely zero to do with any of this. I have zero to do with him since since 2008. So but yeah, it, it, exactly. Go ahead. It's a great, I mean, it's a great ir- irony given 
I think the incredible leadership he showed on 9-11, 19 years ago, today and in the days and weeks that followed and, and what um, sort of an unhinged conspiracy monger he's become since then. I think that's a significant designation. You had senior Trump administration officials commending Treasury. Steve Mnuchin, Treasury Secretary, went out and made a statement about how important this was. There were other designations as well. Um, the Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, talked about how significant it was that Turkach was um, was designated and that uh, his attempts to meddle were were thwarted or publicly acknowledged. And I think we you, you sort of can't put too fine a point on this. This guy, the, the the designation said he has been in effect a Russian asset for the past decade. Yeah. So what Treasury is saying is while Rudy Giuliani is meeting with this guy and doing so openly, by the way, they're photographed together. They're 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 he's talking about Rudy Giuliani, he's tweeting about he's all tweeting the about information it. Yeah. Exactly, that he yeah. learned, what have you. He was doing this with somebody who Treasury is saying was a Russian asset. That's a significant development in my mind. Um, the second significant and, and it doesn't it doesn't take much connecting of the dots there, right? I mean it's right, like you say, it's right it's on, zero. Right on the open. Yeah, it's right, it's right yeah. on your face. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. The second significant development I think relates to China. Um, you had Microsoft come out with a statement about what they've seen from foreign actors uh, attempting to infiltrate the accounts of a variety of institutions and individuals here in the United States connected to our politics, think tanks and um, state-based organizations, senior leaders, government officials, campaign officials, what have you. And the the headline, the New York Times today focused on the, the Russia attempts to meddle there. I think the more significant story in this one is China. And Tom is right. I mean, the way that this has been described to me in the past is China has capabilities that far outstrip what Russia can do. Russia has been much more willing to be aggressive about it. Russia doesn't really shy away from the fact that it's meddling or attempting to meddle, and it likes to be seen as someone giving the United States fits. China would much prefer to do this in the dark and not be called on it, not have fingerprints, not be obvious, um, avoid attribution, particularly from the U.S. If I, if I can, if I can add one, one just to further your distinction there, I think the way I understand it, and maybe this is only a partial understand, Russia is willing to basically meddle in terms of spreading disinformation, misinformation, having bad actors sort of whisper in people's ears, that kind of thing, and and do some meddling online with social media and that sort of thing, but seems to not have drawn a line, not gone for sort of a direct attack on the election system, like electronics, uh, voting machines, that sort of thing. I'm not sure the same could be said with the Chinese in terms of capacity and capability. I think they have, I think they have the capability, I'm not saying they made a decision to, but they have the capability of more directly interfering in the election in a way that really screws things up. I mean, can you imagine, and again, I'm not saying they made a decision, but can you imagine in a closely, uh, close contest where all of a sudden the machine, the, uh, like the computers that are counting votes in Florida, let's say, or somewhere else where the election may be close, are all screwy and they're misreporting stuff and they're all over the place and there's real big time hacking going on. I mean, that would send us, this country, into a tailspin, you know? I can't, I can't imagine yeah. that. Yes, well, that's, <laughs> I do. That, you, do you, may, you, may remember, you may remember, you may remember something along the lines of history along those lines, you know? But, but the, difference is, difference is that, the difference is that was a little bit of incompetence, really, in terms of, of how to count votes, where this would be more a direct, uh, you know, yeah. a direct the, the other, the other interesting development as it relates to China, and I think the New York Times, there's just tremendous respect for David Sanger's work on uh, cyber attacks, cyber as a weapon generally. I think he's done good, good work. I think I mentioned on this podcast a couple of weeks ago that I was reading his, his very scary book, The Perfect Weapon. Uh, I highly recommend it. The, he wrote a, a piece overnight for the New York Times uh, that described some of this. And what Microsoft reported is in tension with what we had gotten uh, publicly in our public discussion about what the three main actors in this space have been doing and why they've been doing it. Remember, there was a briefing on August 7th from William Evanina, who's the, the lead um, on this for the U.S. government. And he said, in effect, it's Iran, Russia, China who are attempting to, to mess with us. And basically, Russia 
would like to see Donald Trump reelected and Iran and China would like to see Joe Biden uh, reelected. And their attempts to meddle roughly follow those objectives. Interestingly, what Microsoft saw, I, I, I didn't know, look, I don't, I don't, I was, I didn't buy that analysis initially. And the people I talked to right away about it, I asked them, I said, why is it that China would so prefer to have uh, Joe Biden elected to serve as the next president? Um, when I think China's made some pretty great headway, and if you look at from, from a geopolitical perspective, where the United States is, the instability that we're seeing, the, the challenges that we're seeing, the uh, dissolving alliances that we're seeing, wouldn't there be a case that China would rather see Donald Trump for another four years if they thought that they could continue some of these worrying trends. And the answer I got back was China wants the United States to be weaker. They, they don't want something to happen quickly. They don't want something to happen overnight. They need to preserve the United States as a market. If there's too much instability, that that would be bad for, for China. I guess I never entirely bought that. And I've had several back and forth with people who are a lot smarter about this than I am. What's interesting in what Microsoft is reporting is that China was actually attempting to mess with Biden-related uh, officials, Biden campaign people. And there was only one former Trump administration official who uh, Microsoft could trace uh, coming being, being attacked or being um, harassed by the Chinese. The way that the New York Times wrote the story was the Trump administration has been amplifying the case that you know, China wants Joe Biden reelected, Iran wants Joe Biden reelected, and and they sort of don't talk about Russia. And certainly it's the case that the Trump administration has done that. They have blown that up. They've tried to make it a campaign issue. But the origin of that reporting, I think it's important to make out. And this is a, uh, I think it's it's just an, it's, it's an uh, important distinction was with the U.S. intelligence community. So this is not the Trump administration making up out of whole cloth that China wanted Joe Biden to win. Now, as I say, they've, they've hyped that, they've amplified it, they've tried to, to make a campaign issue about it. But this was the assessment from the U.S. intelligence community that the Chinese seemed to prefer Biden. So it's not something that you can say the Trump administration has has just invented out of whole cloth. I think it'll be very interesting to follow that. These are very early reports. There's a lot more we, we need to learn, but I think it'll be very interesting to see exactly what China is doing. Do they have a preference? Are they just trying to sow discord? And uh, I think most disturbingly, if China has the, the capabilities that our intelligence community believes that China has, which is to say, could blow up our elections. Do they use it? And I think Tom is right to imagine an incredibly, incredibly scary scenario in which they're in our electoral systems. There's a lot that they can do short of that. There's a lot that they can do short of that, probably without attribution. There's a lot that the Chinese could do short of that without attribution back to China and potentially posing as other actors. So China makes it look like Russia is doing these things to further confuse the situation. Or and Iran. there's a lot yeah. to be concerned about over the next two months. On that, unfortunately, not very cheerful note. Uh, <laughs> last question. So Steve, I am closer to the Kennedy assassination than my son will be to 9-11. And you have kids that range from just uh, above his age all the way up to teenagers. Do you talk to them today? And, and have you talked to them in the past? What do you say? How do you explain something that they didn't live through? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. We do talk about it. Um, I haven't yet today because they jumped on their virtual school right away this morning. Um, We've talked about it in the past. And, you know, I, I think with with younger kids, you have to um, you can't really get into the nuances. Right. You, you, you say basically there are good guys and bad guys here. We're the good guys and these bad guys are trying to to kill us. And while that's not a very nuanced view of this thing as it relates to the United States and Al Qaeda, it's also a very accurate thing. <laughs> um, 
And as they've gotten older, we've talked more about it. I've done you know a fair amount of reporting on these issues, so they'll hear me on the phone with Tom, you know, going through a list of unpronounceable names, and they'll ask me sort of, "Who? who what were you talking about? Who are all those people?" And Is there any piece of journalism that you point to, or a video that you've had them watch? I mean, there's the the maybe to me the most famous. I don't know if it's nationally the most famous, the Falling Man piece. Yes. All about that picture of, um, the man. The Tom Juno piece. Yeah. It was an yeah, incredible it's a, piece. It's an incredible piece of journalism. It's an, it's an interesting entry to remember the day. Uh, cause it's on the one hand, such a small moment and s- such a big moment. It's so, it's s- such a poignant photograph. It's so heavy. Yeah. Um, we linked in today's morning dispatch to, uh, four minute video interviewing the photographer who took that piece, Richard Drew, and he calls it a very quiet photograph. And it, that just listening to him talk about it, it's just sort of leapt out at me. That's exactly what it is. In, in the chaos of that day, as you're as you're watching, you know, cars blown up and buildings come down, it's everything that we saw. That is a very quiet photograph of a very quiet moment. But as Drew says in this video, it's one of the only times you saw somebody dying, captured, dying. And it's a heavy thing to share with kids. I I haven't shared that with them or talked to them about it. But I think, you know, when you get kids who are in their in their upper teens, it's worth wrestling with those issues. And that's probably as good a way to get into it as any. And, and the Tom Juno piece is, is really incredible reporting. I always read Ari Fleischer's tweets from today. He, you know, on the minute that everything happened, will tweet what was happening um, for them. And it's, um, you start to relive it. You don't yeah. at first, each year I don't. And then by the time we get to about now and reading those tweets and seeing all the stories, I start to have an emotional memory, not just a, you know, mental memory. It is amazing. I've seen people um, as they've talked about this and and reflected on what they experienced say that, you know, there's a certain point, just as, as you're saying, Sarah, where it becomes real all over again for you. It's no longer just this distant, you know, memory like the Kennedy assassination. It, it is, I get to a certain point, I can remember exactly where I was when the first tower fell. And what's crazy is I, I usually am pretty quick to think of the implications of big moments. I think um, it, I, it, it took me a beat to figure out like, oh my God, that means that thousands of people or hundreds of people just died. It, it, I didn't get it right away. And then I w- was, we were at the weekly standard offices and we were watching this together as a group and I watched it happen. And then, and, and people were, you know, everybody had their heads in their hands and, oh my gosh. And I went back in my office and I think it took two full minutes. And then it just, you know, then it hits you like a two by four in the face, like, holy cow, that That's is. That's what I just watched. That is absolutely you know, in, incredible. And we had, you know, the weekly standard offices were sort of a buzz that day because we had some of the people who were at the White House who, were, you know, immediately began working on President Bush's speech. What, what do you say in a moment like this? I mean, our, Ari's, Ari was traveling with <clears throat> the president and chronicled that, but you have other people who were immediately working on how the president should think about this, how, what the president should say about this. And some of them came to our offices. They didn't have anywhere to work. I think they started out at the Chamber of Commerce and then maybe went to the American Enterprise Institute. Some of them ended up at, at the Weekly Standard and they just sat in an office and started, you know, kept, kept observing and started writing. Um, and pretty soon downtown, you know, emptied out. You were walking around downtown Washington, D.C. and people were you know, either sort of panicked and trying to get out of downtown DC and you had people driving up on curbs to get around the traffic. And it was, you know, there was this obvious moment of panic, but by late afternoon, early evening, it was people were in almost, they, they were walking around like they were almost in a trance. Nobody could quite process the the enormity of, 
of what was happening. And that is an enduring memory. I mean, that is, as you say, I think that's a lot of people experience it like like you just described, Sarah, where, you know, you're sort of intellectually aware of it and you think about it in terms of its its impact on the course of the nation and how people reacted and what's happened since the stuff that we've been talking about, um, you know, for the first 45 minutes here. But then as you pay attention as this day proceeds, you, you do live it again. And it's, uh, it's jarring. One of the conversations online today, and it's been going on for the last several months and it's bothered me, but not, it's bothered me because it's become this like culture war thing about comparing deaths of nine 11 to COVID. Yeah. I just don't want any part of that conversation. No, no, um, no. but, but what I do think will be interesting, as I mentioned, like for me, nine 11 and heading to college, it was, a, I think that for that generational age, it was just incredibly impactful. And I do think for these kids, you know, I teach college and, um, when they sent them all home, I told them, I was like, you know, I was your age when nine 11 happened. There's going to be similarities. There's going to be a ton of differences to how this affects your generation, but this will be generation defining, I think for them. And I'm fascinated to see what that will mean for their generation. Your oldest, I think will be part of that generation. Yeah. Yeah. No question about it. I mean, it's, it's interesting. We we really haven't forced these conversations. We've made a point to talk about them because you know they they go they talk about these things at school. I think it's important that they begin to appreciate you know the the world around them and just how big the world is. Um, you don't, on the one hand, want to kind of shatter the the innocence of of younger kids. On the other hand, they've got to they've got to figure these things out at one time or another. And we, you know, we lived overseas in Europe for a year. So I think our kids are kind of particularly aware of how big the world is and, and all that it has to offer. But also I think it's important to, to let them know that not everybody loves us, um, which is a hard lesson to teach. All right, Tom, thank you so much for joining us today and for remembering this day with us and where we have been, where we have come, where we are now. Yeah, I'll and leave you with, uh, if I can say one quick thing on your way out. Of course. So I have a 10 and 8-year-old daughters, and uh, they sometimes stumble upon me looking at Al-Qaeda's websites, uh, you know, my home office, whatever else, because I monitor about 200 to 300 Al-Qaeda ISIS channels and websites every day. Um, and what I tell them, they've been they've gotten exposed to 9-11 at school, and I, I don't actually like the version of what they've been taught. Um, but I, I give them, uh, some pointers about it. I say, you know, a lot of what people will talk about is how bad 9-11 was, was all these years ago, all these people were killed. I, what I explain to them is, and they get it right away, is that what you need to understand is that, well, yeah, that happened on 9-11, Al-Qaeda kills people every day around the globe, every day. So mm-hmm. does ISIS. So does ISIS. And a lot of people that daddy deals with assumes that they can't kill Americans in America anymore. And I would say, I don't make that assumption. How, do, how does a 10 and 8-year-old, what they're do you think they're absorbing they're, from that? They're pretty tough little girls. They, they, <laughs> they, get, they get it. I mean, they, they bring the questions to me. So they, you know, they, they want to know. Like this morning, my 10-year-old got up and she said, today's 9-11. I got an idea, Daddy. What if um, the FBI, you know, she knows I talked to the FBI and, you know, I've done some, some teaching some counterterrorism classes with the FBI in the past. And she says, what if the FBI puts somebody on every plane? So if the bad guys come on the plane, then the FBI has a guy there. My wife quickly said, well, actually, you know, after pretty close at air marshals, <laughs> they do that. And you're like, yeah, it's a great idea. You know, and so they, they, they like to come up with different ideas. And the little one, eight, my eight year old, who I, who I think um, has the potential to become the tyrant who takes over the American Republic after it falls and turns <laughs> it into her own little empire, um, the little empress, she, uh, she's, uh, uh, she has has her own creative ideas for dispatching with the bad guys um, that she comes up with. Uh, some of which are a little shocking here, come out of a little eight year old girl's mouth. But uh, one of the one of the tamer ones was she said, "Well, why don't you or have somebody be a double agent? You know, basically be a spy, pretend to be one of the bad guys, and learn what they're doing, and then you know you can you can find out, and then you can tell the good guys." I said, "Well, we had a couple people like that. The U.S. and its allies have had a few people like that. So there's that's a good idea too." 
She goes, well, why aren't we doing that right now? It's like, well, we probably, you know, probably are some countries that are doing that right now. She goes, well, how many of them are there? I go, well, we don't know. If they wouldn't be good spies, would they, if we knew who they are? She goes, good point. Good point. Good point. <laughs> so, so, so. so it sounds like she's ready to watch the Americans and uh, we'll just get her trained up on our side. It, it sounds like it's important to keep her on our side. Yeah, I think she uh, she could have imperialistic ambitions if uh, if if if, uh, if no if no parents didn't attend to her sort of uh, yeah, or her emotions, you know. So good thing she has you. Yeah. Uh, all right, listeners, thank you for joining us. We will see you again next week. <laughs> <laughs>